Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. On a warm July day in 1518, a woman named Frau Trofea was walking along the narrow, cobbled street outside her home in Strasbourg, France, when a strange urge overcame her. Although there was no music, nor any other discernible reason she might have begun doing so, Frau Trofea stopped right there in the middle of the street and began to dance. A number of people stopped to gawk at this peculiar sight. After a while, Frau Trofea's husband began to wonder why everyone was gathering just outside his front door. He peered out and was stunned to see that they were all staring at his wife. The man ran out and tried to convince his wife to stop and come inside, but Frau Trofea ignored him. She just kept moving rhythmically to a song that no one else could hear, and she never stopped. She kept this up all through the night, and the next night after that, and the next. This reportedly went on for somewhere between four to six days. And what was worse, over time, soon others began to join her. By the end of the week, 30 more people had gathered along the narrow street and had begun to dance with her. Within a month, more than 400 people were dancing together. The town didn't know what to do. Strasbourg's doctor declared the dancing plague to be the result of hot blood and actually prescribed more dancing to burn it out of their system. In differing accounts, after that, the town either built a makeshift stage in front of the horse market in order to give the dancers room to get it out of their system, or the party was moved inside the town hall where it could be easily contained. In either instance, from a distance, you might think this was history's earliest example of a flash mob. But when you got up close, you realize these people were in serious distress. Their eyes remained glassy and distant, even as sweat drenched their foreheads and blood seeped from their swollen feet. As the days wore on, people began dying. Many of them dropped dead from heart attacks and strokes, some just from overexertion. It was estimated that at its height as many as 15 people a day were dying from the dancing plague. In the end, after much debate between the town leaders and the clergy, it was decided to tie up the afflicted with ropes and take them on a long journey into the mountains to the shrine of St. Vitus. There, priests prayed over them for the dancing to stop, and miraculously, it appeared to work. As a result, this incident and others like it have sometimes come to be known as St. Vitus's Dance. Although the Dancing Plague of 1518 is a fairly well-known event in history, what's less often discussed is that it wasn't the only one like it. At least ten other instances of large groups of people dancing for no apparent reason were reported throughout Europe during the 15th and 16th centuries. Today, there are plenty of theories about what may have caused the dancing plague. One school of thought suggests it was a case of mass hysteria, exacerbated by the religious mania of the day. Considering that prayer at a local shrine appeared to fix these people right up, this doesn't seem out of the realm of possibilities either. 
There is another theory, though, that suggests the culprit may have been something of a much more earthly nature. A psychoactive fungus that grew on rye, known as ergot. When ingested, ergot produces toxic alkaloids that cut off the blood supply to the body's extremities, which eventually leads to the limbs turning black with gangrene. Ergotism is also known to produce powerful hallucinations in people. These are symptoms that had been seen in people for centuries, although they weren't truly understood until sometime during the 18th or 19th centuries, when doctors finally began to associate the fungus with the reason people were acting so strangely. Before then, physicians would sometimes refer to the combination of convulsions, hallucinations, and excruciating burning sensations in the limbs as holy fire. The arms and legs turning black from gangrene was mistaken by some members of the religious community for an actual invisible fire brought on by evil forces. During the 10th century, special hospitals were set up by the monks of St. Anthony of Egypt to deal with the rash of people suffering from this malady. As a result, the so-called holy fire would soon take on the name of another saint whom it was believed had the power to cure people of this terrible affliction, St. Anthony's fire. The ergot fungus was believed to have killed tens of thousands of people in the Rhine Valley during the 9th century. By the 10th and 11th centuries, it was widely believed that St. Anthony's fire was an affliction brought on by the devil himself and could only be cured by praying to and even coming into direct contact with religious relics left behind by St. Anthony. By the end of the 15th century, roughly 370 hospitals had been built across Europe to deal with St. Anthony's fire. In France, the medical facilities came to be known as the Hospitals of the Dismembered because of the custom they had of displaying the patient's amputated limbs at the entrance as an offering to God. Although ergotism has often been linked to the dancing plagues of the 15th and 16th centuries, some historians dispute this belief since St. Anthony's fire was a known condition at the time, and since many of these outbreaks occurred in locations where rye was not eaten. Ergotism is also something that was theorized to have helped create the witch scares throughout the Middle Ages. Whatever the truth may be, we do know for a fact that ergot's effects on a community can be devastating. By the 18th century, the use of wheat and bread making was replacing the use of rye, and thus the number of deaths began to dwindle. But not entirely. Occasionally, new outbreaks continued to occur. In the Soviet Union in 1926, almost 12,000 people were infected with ergotism. Similar outbreaks were also experienced in Ethiopia and India during the late 20th century. Perhaps the most famous modern epidemic attributed to ergotism occurred in a picturesque French village in August 1951. This was an incident in which more than 300 people began experiencing terrifying symptoms that included convulsions, mass hallucinations, and even death. It's an incident that is steeped in mystery even to this day one which some people claim may be tied directly to one of the darkest conspiracies of the Cold War. I'm Nate Hale, and it's time to hang up your blacklight posters, crank up Stairway to Heaven, and dust off your tinfoil hats, because we're about to take one long, strange trip together. And this is The Conspirators. On April 16, 1943, a chemist named Dr. Albert Hoffman was working in his lab in the world headquarters of the Sandoz Drug Company on the outskirts of Basel, Switzerland, when he began to feel strange. 
It started with a wave of dizziness that overcame him suddenly. He later described it as a sensation sort of like being drunk. But rather than feeling sleepy and lethargic, it was like all his nerve endings were suddenly lit on fire at once. Dr. Hoffman told his co-workers he wasn't feeling well and left work early that day. By the time he rode his bicycle home, he had begun to hallucinate. He saw before his eyes a kaleidoscope of colors unlike anything he had ever seen before. Dr. Hoffman didn't know it yet, but he was currently experiencing the world's first acid trip. You see, Dr. Hoffman had been experimenting with the ergot fungus and had inadvertently come in contact with a new derivative compound that he named lysergic acid diethylamide, although most people more commonly know it by its abbreviation, LSD. Around the time this was going on, less than 200 miles away from Dr. Hoffman's lab, doctors connected to the Nazi SS and Gestapo were performing their own experiments with other psychotropic drugs, such as mescaline, on prisoners of the Dachau concentration camp. Following World War II, stories of the atrocities committed by these Nazi physicians would lead to their arrest and trial in Nuremberg, Germany. Twenty-two men and one woman were put on trial for the horrific experiments they performed on human guinea pigs. Eleven of the accused were given prison sentences, seven were sentenced to death, and five were acquitted. This would also lead to the Americans drafting a new set of rules governing human experimentation, known as the Nuremberg Code. But even with the Nazis defeated, so too was another enemy beginning to generate fear in the United States, the Soviet Union. Fear of communism during the early days of the Cold War would play a major hand in the U.S. government creating a top-secret program known as Operation Paperclip, in which as many as 1,500 former Nazi scientists were granted immunity and allowed to live and work in the U.S. in exchange for their knowledge. Although officially there were now strict rules outlawing most forms of human experimentation without consent, that didn't prevent the American government from performing experiments on its own citizens. It should come as no shock to anyone that throughout history there have been a number of people perfectly willing to do terrible things in the name of the greater good. In this particular instance, the greater good was the overarching idea of defeating communism. From the 1950s all the way up to the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, the Cold War was used as the broad excuse for hundreds of covert experiments by scientists working for U.S. intelligence. Many of these experiments were performed on the most vulnerable members of society, including psychiatric patients, prison inmates, homeless people, and even children. The U.S. Army even experimented on its own soldiers. For example, between 1946 and 1962, somewhere between 250,000 to half a million soldiers were exposed to high doses of radiation from atomic tests on the Bikini Atoll and in the Nevada desert with little or no protection, just to see how their bodies would react. Films exist today showing many soldiers sweeping up the radioactive dust after the atomic test with brooms. That's right, I said brooms. Although the military's primary interest was in perfecting the atomic bomb, the CIA became more interested in psychological manipulation. In particular, the CIA had two goals they wanted to achieve. First, perfecting the ultimate truth serum. And second, creating the perfect spy and assassin. One who was programmed to act without question and would have no memory of what they did after. When word of Dr. Hoffman's discovery of LSD reached American shores the CIA came knocking. 
Fearing the Soviet Union would get their hands on LSD first, the Americans purchased all of Sandoz's stock. Throughout the 1950s and all the way into the 1970s, the CIA would fund hundreds of covert experiments in labs across the country under a variety of code names that included Project Bluebird, Project Artichoke, and the most infamous name of them all, Project MKUltra. It's a name that has become the stuff of legend in conspiracy circles, one that often gets written off as tinfoil hat nonsense. But the fact is, Project MKUltra really did exist and it had devastating consequences for a number of people. It was officially begun in 1953 under the order of then-CIA Director Alan Dulles. It would continue to operate until 1973, when the program was abruptly shut down during the height of the Watergate scandal. In the years that followed, multiple congressional hearings would be held by senators including Nelson Rockefeller and Ted Kennedy that helped bring the program to the public's attention. Mind you, even today, we don't fully know everything that went on in Project MKUltra. Many of the experiments the CIA funded were conducted in university hospitals and labs throughout the country, many of whom didn't even know they were being funded by the CIA. Just before CIA Director Richard Helms retired in 1973, he ordered the destruction of all files related to Project MKUltra for fear of the public blowback, as word had begun leaking out about what the CIA had been doing. At the time, Watergate was bubbling to the surface, and the CIA didn't want to give the government another black eye on top of that. It was only through a bureaucratic snafu that several thousand documents related to the project survived the massive purge. And most of those were financial documents that only give a limited idea of what the money was being spent on. But even still, over time, test subjects and whistleblowers began coming forward telling terrifying stories of what had been done in the name of science. In fact, some of these stories even tie back to earlier episodes of this show. In one episode, I talked about a series of psychological experiments that were performed on a then 17-year-old Ted Kaczynski, a.k.a. the Unabomber, when he was still a college student at Harvard. Well, that was a CIA-related experiment to determine how to psychologically break down an individual. Some people have even suggested that these experiments may have helped turn Kaczynski into the Unabomber later in life. Kaczynski isn't the only infamous criminal tied to Project MKUltra either. Another one was mob boss James Whitey Bulger, who claimed to have been dosed on several occasions with LSD while he was an inmate in an Atlanta prison. You may also have heard me talk in a more recent episode about Dr. Charles Scudder, who was brutally murdered in his Georgia home he called Corpsewood Manor. Well, years before he moved to Georgia, Dr. Scudder was a doctor of psychopharmacology in Chicago, whose primary funding also came from MKUltra. Yet another episode in which I previously touched on MKUltra is one in which I described the CIA's interest in hypnosis to create an unwitting assassin. Well, that was only part of the bigger picture. Following the Korean War, some soldiers began returning home with disturbing tales of being captured, but having no memory of what they said or did while in enemy hands. This would lead to speculation that the communists had the ability to manipulate soldiers' minds and turn them into what came to be known as a Manchurian Candidate, a name taken from a popular book and movie about mind control. The idea was that you could take a prisoner of war and through a combination of drugs and hypnosis, turn them into a brainwashed assassin who would have no idea that they were under someone else's control. Fear that the Soviets could brainwash people into doing their bidding spurred on the CIA's own experiments. 
From there, the CIA established a black budget and began funneling money to scientists all around the country for experiments involving psychological manipulation and the use of psychotropic drugs, including LSD. Records indicate this covert program had at least 149 sub-programs and included experiments conducted in 86 universities and many more mental health facilities across the United States. For example, one such CIA-funded experiment involved a highly respected child neuropsychiatrist named Dr. Loretta Bender, who experimented extensively on children using a combination of electroshock treatments and drugs from 1940 to 1969. In total... It's believed Dr. Bender experimented on at least 500 children between the ages of 3 to 12 years old, all of whom had been diagnosed with what was described as autistic schizophrenia. After leaving Bellevue in 1956, Dr. Bender continued her experiments on children at Creedmoor State Hospital for an additional 13 years. Throughout her career, more than 100 of Dr. Bender's young patients were subjected to electroshock therapy. Although publicly, Dr. Bender reported she was pleased with the positive results she saw in the children. She was actually privately frustrated because many of the children she treated appeared worse than before the treatments began. One of her nine-year-old patients even attempted suicide because he was so afraid of receiving more shocks. Nonetheless, Dr. Bender kept going with her experiments. And when the opportunity came around to try something new and test a variety of psychoactive drugs created by Sandoz Laboratories in the kids, she took it. One story tells of a girl named Mary who was handed off to a foster family when her birth mother and father decided they didn't want her anymore. After the foster family decided they didn't want her either, Mary ended up in Dr. Loretta Bender's care. Almost immediately, Dr. Bender began dosing her with LSD to see how it would affect her. Mary was five years old. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Perhaps the most prominent doctor who came to work for MKUltra was a Scottish-born psychiatrist named Dr. Donald Ewan Cameron. Dr. Cameron was very well respected in the psychiatric community and actually served for a time as the head of the World Psychiatric Association, among other prestigious positions. During the Nuremberg trials, Dr. Cameron was among the select few invited to conduct a psychiatric evaluation of Rudolf Hess. Over his career, Dr. Cameron began to come up with theories on society that have since been disavowed by his peers. Dr. Cameron believed people fell into two categories, the mentally weak and the mentally strong. The weak were those plagued with insecurities that made them incapable of coping with society, whereas the strong were the mental leaders. Cameron believed that the weak needed to be isolated and separated from the strong so that they did not contaminate the gene pool. During the 1950s and 1960s, the CIA enlisted Dr. Cameron to perform experiments on their behalf at the Allen Memorial Institute in Montreal, Canada. Dr. Cameron experimented extensively on patients using electroshock treatments and psychoactive drugs, including LSD. Many of the experiments conducted by Dr. Cameron sound absolutely barbaric. Patients under his care received electroshocks at as much as 30 or 40 times what was considered the safe level. 
Another experiment involved a patient who was simultaneously hooked up to two IVs, one containing a powerful barbiturate and the other full of methamphetamines. The idea was to pump the patient full of the barbiturate until the moment they were just about to fall asleep, then immediately jolt them awake with a shot of the methamphetamines. During the brief period where they were jolted into consciousness, the patient would babble uncontrollably. The hope was that a captured spy would give up valuable information using this technique. Dr. Cameron also performed what he called his depatterning experiments, in which patients were put into a drug-induced coma for weeks at a time, all the way up to as much as three months. This was done inside the so-called sleep room, and during the time the patients were unconscious, they were forced to listen to a constant recorded loop of instructions. The screams that echoed through the hallways of the Allen Memorial Institute did not deter any of the hospital workers from following Dr. Cameron's orders. Patients who went in for such relatively minor reasons as anxiety or postpartum depression were put through extensive mental conditioning that resulted in complete amnesia in some of them. In several instances, the patients were reduced to the level of an infant and would have to relearn how to walk, talk, and feed themselves after leaving the institute. Another infamous experiment conducted by the CIA was something called Project Midnight Climax, in which the agency opened up their own brothel. In 1955, the agency renovated a number of safe houses in San Francisco, where they began hiring prostitutes to dose their johns with LSD while agents observed them behind two-way glass. It's unclear just what the agency was expecting to achieve from these tests. It's even reported that eventually some of these agents began taking their experiment out into the field and dosing random strangers in bars around San Francisco just to see what would happen. Although the agency tested a number of psychoactive drugs on unwitting people, it seemed to have a special affinity for LSD in particular. In fact, use of LSD became so widespread that they actually had to issue warnings for CIA employees to not leave their coffee cups unattended, because occasionally fun-loving agents might dose their cups as a gag. Frank Olson was an American bacteriologist and biological warfare scientist who worked at what was then called Camp Dietrich in Maryland, and is currently called Fort Dietrich. Olson was a senior bacteriologist in the program, and it was rumored he worked with aerosolized anthrax during the Korean War. Unfortunately, a lot of what Olson worked on during his time at Camp Dietrich is still classified. But what we do know is that over time, he became increasingly disillusioned with what he was doing. On November 18, 1953, Frank Olson was invited to a CIA-run retreat in Deep Creek Lake, Maryland. While there, someone dosed Olson's drink with LSD. After that, Dr. Olson became increasingly despondent and withdrawn. A week after the retreat, Olson told his bosses that he couldn't take it anymore and wanted to quit the biological warfare program. The official story is that Dr. Olson suffered a nervous breakdown, and the CIA sent him to see an agency physician in New York City. Mind you, this wasn't a psychiatrist. He was actually an allergist who helped them study the psychological effects of LSD on humans. And in the case of Frank Olson... He prescribed more LSD for the man. Then on November 28, 1953, Frank Olson plummeted to his death by falling from the window of his 10th floor hotel room at the Statler Hotel. To this day, there remains questions about whether Dr. Frank Olson jumped or had help. Although initially the government claimed Dr. Olson suffered a mental breakdown, when the Rockefeller Commission began holding hearings in MK Ultra in 1975, it was revealed that Olson had been dosed with LSD without his knowledge nine days before his death. 
The government settled out of court with Olson's family for $1.25 million, an amount which was later reduced to $750,000. The family also received a public apology from then-CIA Director William Colby and President Gerald Ford. In 1994, Eric Olson had his father's body exhumed and had a private autopsy performed on the remains. The new autopsy report showed unusual abrasions and contusions on the body, including blunt force trauma to the left side of the head and an injury to his chest that occurred before the fall. Eric Olson believes his father was murdered by the CIA, likely to shut him up about what he knew. Ever since then, he has attempted to keep his father's case open and get to the government to admit what he believes to be true. In 2012, Eric and his brother Nils sued to have the government unseal further records regarding his father's death, although the case was later dismissed. I want to back up here several decades and return to the year 1951, to a picturesque village in France called Pont-Saint-Esprit. On August 17, 1951, the offices of the town's three doctors were full of patients lined up out the door complaining of severe stomach ailments, including cramps, diarrhea, and vomiting. Doctors would have passed this off as a simple stomach bug, except the patients continued to exhibit some other unusual symptoms. Several patients complained of insomnia, even though they felt simultaneously exhausted. One man claimed he was unable to sleep for 30 days straight. Many of the patients also complained that their symptoms went away after only 48 hours, but returned in force soon after. After a few days, many of them began complaining of having vivid and terrifying hallucinations. A man named Gabriel Valadier was reported as shouting to his roommates that I'm dead, my head is made of copper, and I have snakes in my stomach. One young girl began screaming that she was being attacked by tigers. An 11-year-old boy named Charles Grandjean went crazy and tried to strangle his own mother. By August 24th, the situation had become unmanageable. A patient jumped from a hospital's second-story window shouting, I'm an airplane. The man broke both his legs, but somehow, even after that, he still managed to keep running for another 50 meters toward the main road before hospital staff tackled him. Newspaper reporters converged on the little town to see for themselves what was going on. They observed people running through the streets, tearing off their clothes and screaming that red flowers were blossoming from their bodies. Dozens of patients were carted off to mental hospitals and strapped down as they convulsed wildly. It's estimated around 300 people were affected by this plague of madness, including as many as seven deaths. Several people remained institutionalized for years after the incident and continued to suffer residual effects for the remainder of their lives. In the months and years that followed, plenty of speculation has been made about just what caused the bizarre incident at Pont Saint-Esprit. Some people thought it was a modern outbreak of St. Anthony's fire, Others thought it might have been raw sewage seeping into the water supply, or even organic mercury poisoning. An article published in the British Medical Journal a month later said the symptoms people experienced matched those of ergot poisoning. Pretty soon all fingers were being pointed at the local baker, Roche-Briand. It was believed that all 300 patients ate bread from Roche-Briand's bakery just before falling ill. Newspapers jumped on this story and were quick to point out how proud Briand had been that he had the whitest bread in town. In fact, one alternate theory to Briand serving up bread tainted with ergot was that either he or the local miller had used some flour tainted with a bleaching chemical to make it extra white that caused the outbreak. Although Briand and the miller were both arrested a few weeks after the incident, 
Eventually, all charges were dropped. Although ergot poisoning was widely considered the culprit, an American laboratory ran tests on volunteers who ate bread deliberately tainted with ergot, but none of them experienced symptoms that matched those of the people of Pont Saint-Esprit. Despite this, though, even today the most commonly held belief is that the people of the French village suffered from eating bad bread. But that's not the only theory. There are some researchers who have examined the outbreak in Pont Saint-Esprit who believe that the CIA intentionally poisoned the village with LSD. Now look, I'll be the first to admit the idea sounds outlandish. Occam's razor is the principle of philosophy that states that whenever you have two solutions to a problem, the simplest and most obvious solution is usually the right one. In this case, the most obvious answer is the local baker got his hands on some bad flour and served the locals' bread made from it. And yet, there's more evidence than you might think that the more outlandish solution about the CIA is the correct answer. At the time the investigation was going on, the possibility was considered that the townspeople might have been exposed to LSD somehow. As a result, one of the many scientists who showed up in the village following the outbreak was none other than Albert Hoffman, the inventor of LSD. While he was there, Hoffman looked at all the evidence and stated his firm belief it was indeed his drug that had caused so many people to go mad. But by the time Dr. Hoffman returned to his lab at Sandoz headquarters in Switzerland, he had already begun backpedaling and claimed it must have been something else besides LSD that caused the trouble. There are, of course, several major problems with the theory that the CIA poisoned Pont Saint-Esprit with LSD. From a purely scientific standpoint, it doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. After all, the village wasn't exactly a controlled environment within which to study the results of such a test. But remember, during this time, the CIA didn't seem to be adhering to the most rigorous scientific method in any instance. These are the same people who open their own brothels and like to dose each other with LSD for fun. Some researchers who believe the CIA theory suggest the town of Pont-Saint-Esprit was chosen for its relative isolation, along with the fact that the village was highly socialist in its political leanings, which, back in the 1950s, was considered synonymous with being a communist. Another issue some scientists have pointed out is that the LSD compound likely would have broken down when it encountered the high heat from the baker's ovens. Although some researchers have countered that at the time, CIA scientists were experimenting with a whole slew of hallucinogenic compounds. And who knows what chemical may have been used, or how it was spread throughout the village. In 2009, journalist Hank Alberelli Jr. published a book about Pont Saint-Esprit, titled A Terrible Mistake, where he claims to have discovered a top-secret report issued by the research director of the Edgewood Arsenal, where many government-sponsored LSD experiments were carried out. The report stated that the Army should immediately begin field testing of the drug. The hope was that the Army could weaponize LSD by spreading it over a large region in order to incapacitate the enemy. The report allegedly states that the Army should do everything it could to begin launching field experiments using LSD. This was in 1949, just two years before Pont Saint-Esprit. There was also a report from a Sandoz executive that stated, quote, The Pont Saint-Esprit secret is that it was not the bread at all. It was not grain ergot. Ultimately, we'll probably never know for certain what the cause was of the outbreak in Pont Saint-Esprit. There is one other interesting fact that may make you stop and wonder, though. Among the declassified CIA files Hank Alberelli dug up for his book, it also mentions a name we're all familiar with as well. 
It's that of an individual who was in France just a couple months before the incident at Pont Saint-Esprit. A doctor who specialized in chemical and biological warfare, in particular, aerosolized chemical warfare. The CIA report Hank Alborelli mentions lists the name of one F. Olson in connection with Pont Saint-Esprit. F. Olson, also known as Frank Olson. The doctor who, after 1951, became increasingly despondent and disillusioned with his job for some unknown reason. A doctor who, one day two years later, the agency covertly dosed with LSD. And just nine days after that, died from a mysterious fall from a New York hotel window. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I need to give a shout out to some new Patreon supporters. Thanks so much to Danielle, Kimberly, and Christina. I couldn't do this without you. Just a reminder, patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our special bonus mini-episodes. Also, thanks so much to each and every one of you who have taken the time to rate and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. I know pretty much every podcast asks for your reviews on Apple, but it really does help us out with Apple's mystical algorithms and boosts our show higher in Apple's charts, allowing us to spread the good word about the conspirators. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. You can also find us on Stitcher, Google Play, and your favorite podcast app. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and our Facebook page. Feel free to drop me a line and let me know what you think about the show. I'm always happy to hear your feedback. Thanks again for everything, and I hope you'll join us again next time.